seats. Good morning, everyone. How are you? I am Jared, one of the pastoral staff here at Metro Praise International, filling in for Pastor Joe. We will be continuing our series in 1 John, picking up where we left off last week. So let's all open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Today we want to ask the question, who are the children of God? The way the world will often answer that question is by saying, well, we're all children of God, aren't we? And that's what they're saying there. They're basically implying what's called universalism. If you haven't heard of that ism before, be thankful. But it's basically the belief that, you know, God just loves everybody, so everybody's getting into heaven at the end of the day, right? That's kind of what they what they imply. That's the Trojan horse. We're all God's children, and then what's, what's packed into that statement there, right? But the Bible says that's not the case. Not all are God's children, and we can know the difference. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, so let's just read the text. I'm going to read the entire thing like the audio Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, by the Word of God. So I'm going to read the text without comment, and then we will break down and give analysis. 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who who does what is right has been born of him. Chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. How about that? Let's break this down. I'm going to take this text and basically um, divide it into three sections. You have verses uh, 228 to 3.3. 
verses 228 to 33, which speaks of the blessed hope of the children of God. Everyone say blessed hope. When the Bible speaks of hope, it's not just kind of the vague expectation that things will go right for you. When we speak of hope, that in the worldly sense, that's often what we mean, right? Very vague. You just got to hope, you know, there's, there's going to be sunshine at the end of the day or what have you. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is in reference to something very specific and very powerful. Amen? The thing that we hope for is greater than anything else in this world. Now, it exhorts us in 28 that as dear children that we should continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. With the blessed hope, it is all revolves around the return of Jesus. He's coming back, you know. Are you ready? And so that is our blessed hope, that when Jesus comes back, he will finalize our redemption. Let's read on. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Say, born of him. Now, we're going to expound on this a little bit later on, but that is very important to know that if you are a child of God, you must be born of God. Amen. A child must be born first, and then they're a child. See what great love, now in 3 verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Right here is where I want to take a praise break. I want to take a, a moment here to do what this passage is saying. Now, the English word, the very first word of chapter 3 verse 1 is see. Not very descriptive but the Greek word means to stare at, to discern clearly, to experience. As other translations will read, Behold what great love the Father has lavished on us. And the saying bodes true that familiarity breeds contempt, and we become familiar with the idea that God loves us. We hear it so often that the words lose all meaning. But I want us for a moment to behold what great love the Father has for us. Just as our sister Jerry was, was saying during the transition, that some of us forget the, the mountains that God has moved. We forget the miracles that God has done the things that he has saved us from, the things that he has delivered us from, the, 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 the many, many, many sins that he has forgiven and cleansed our consciences of. Sometimes we forget. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it talks about those who are nearsighted and they forget that they have been cleansed of their past sins. They forgot what it was like to be a sinner. They forgot how empty it left them. It left them so empty like the, like the bottles that they would drink and consume, you know. And the desperation that brought them to Jesus. And then how joyous it was, this honeymoon phase that they had with the Lord, where Jesus is their everything. 
They're so grateful. They're so full of God's love. They're so full of peace. They're so full of purpose. And yet many forsake their first love because they forget God's love. I want you to understand that principle. People forsake God's, uh, their love for God when they forget His love for them. When you forget God loves you, I mean, you can have mental assent to it. You can be in agreement with the fact, yes, God loves me. But you can be just so casual and cavalier about it. Oh, yeah, God loves me. I know, I know, I know. And, and in that sense, you forget. You forget what God has done. You forget the depths of it. And so I want to read a few texts and, and take time on this. To see how this is spelled out. Let's look at some different verses here. Let's look at Romans uh, chapter 5. Romans 5. And let's look at verse 5. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame... Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's a life verse there. His love has been poured out into our hearts. Imagine your heart is a vessel that was empty in your B.C. days. You were looking for love in all the wrong places, right? You were looking for love in a bed. You were looking for love in a bottle. And that could be a bottle of pills or a bottle of booze. You were looking for love in, in the acceptance of others and achievement and all that was an attempt to fill the God-shaped hole in your heart. Your heart was an empty vessel, as dry as the desert. And God, when you believed, poured His love into your heart. Overflowing, as John chapter 7 talks about, that rivers of living water would flow from your inmost being. It wasn't just a trickle or a drop. It wasn't just halfway. God was not being stingy. He poured His love into your hearts. And we can attest to this from not knowing love, but desperately wanting it. Isn't it funny that so many songs in the world are about love? Whether it's about the experience in a positive sense or heartbreak. But we're all looking for it. We all desperately desire it. And He gives it freely and abundantly. It goes on though. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, everyone say demonstrate, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
In Romans, Paul says that someone might die for a good person or someone they love. Like, I would die for my wife and children. That is, that is the standard expectation. If anyone goes, it's me, not them. Right? But am I going to die for a, a pedophile? Am I going to die for a stranger? Honestly, most of us would say no, even though we would try to like puff our chest and, and be all moral and spiritual. When it comes down to it, you're probably going to have a hard time feeling motivated to die for someone like that. And yet on our worst day, doing our worst deed, Christ died for us. While we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Something about God's love you need to understand. If you don't see your sin as great, great in the sense of huge, to quote our president, great in the sense of how, how deep, how it had worked through our being, how it had become us, how dark, how twisted, how warped it was. If you don't see your sin as great, you will never see God's love as great. God's love, to love the unlovable, to love the worst, most wretched sinners. One of the reasons I think that we get God's love twisted and we take it for granted is that we, we just have this very, very generic hallmark uh, picture of love. We just had Valentine's Day, just this very sentimental, ooey-gooey thing, right? Look here, God demonstrates love has to be shown with actions, and why was it necessary while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? It wasn't enough for God to send you a card on your birthday. It wasn't enough for God to send you a text saying, I heart you. We're going to read next week, First uh, John chapter 3, where it says, Let us not love it in merely in words, but in action and in truth. And God loves with action. God loved with the greatest action. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he didn't give something petty. He didn't give something that didn't cost him anything. He's God. He gave the one thing that cost him everything. He gave of his very self. He gave his best. He gave his son. And nothing less than the giving of his son could save your sorry, sinful butt. Nothing less could save us from our sins while we were helpless. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I don't know about you, but I can think back to the horrible things that I looked at on my computer. I don't know about you, but I can think back to shaking my fist, saying, God, you hate me and I hate you. And there may be things that you have done that nobody knows about, but God does. And God was willing to forgive you. And God was willing to love you. We take God's love for granted, but you don't understand. We don't deserve God's love. The Bible talks about us being God's enemies. Enemies. Do you think God's enemies go to heaven? God's enemies go to hell. Do you understand? We did not deserve his love. We did everything that we possibly could to disqualify ourselves from this love. So how do we go from being God's enemies, 
from being the Taliban to being brought into God's house. And you know what I mean by that. We were treasonous. We were rebels against God's kingdom. And everything that we did, even if you weren't the bad sinner, you weren't on drugs, you weren't stealing from folks, some of us can say, yeah, that, that, that was me. I was doing a lot of bad stuff. You're a little more honest. You're like the prostitute and the tax collectors. Like nobody has to convince you you're wrong. But some of us are still a little more self-righteous, arrogant, prideful, religious perhaps. But at the root of all that sin was saying, God, I don't want your will for my life. I want my will to be done. God, I don't want your purpose for my life. I'll find my own purpose. God, I don't like your commands. They're an impediment to my flourishing. Every one of us, ingrateful rebels against a holy and righteous God. We deserve death, hell, and the grave, not adoption to sonship. Do you understand? You must know this. The depths of your sin only magnify the depths of God's love while we were still sinners. But let's read on. There's more. There's more in the book of Romans, in fact. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It's fascinating that a lot of liberals, theological liberals, don't like Paul. They think Paul is, is, is too hard-nosed. He's too, uh, he's too harsh. And yet Paul speaks so forcefully about the love of God. We call John the apostle of love, but Paul has a lot to say as well in this very letter. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we're preaching First John here. So I'm not going to exegete that a whole lot. But isn't that powerful? The depths of God's love. The power of God's love. That nothing can stop, nothing can get in the way of God's love for us. I want to look at a few more verses. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We're not done beholding. We're not done beholding. Don't take for granted that God loves you. He don't have to love you. Psalm 103. 
Praise the Lord, my soul. You know what that means? The psalmist is commanding his soul, praise God. You ever don't feel like praising God? Lifting up your hands, raising your voice? You must will yourself. Feelings just want to be felt. I don't care what you feel like. You have to will yourself to praise the Lord because he is worthy. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Forget not all his benefits. Forget not what he has done for you, children of God. I have one more while we're at it. Look at 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be studying this in a couple of weeks, I think, so I don't want to take Joe's thunder for when that time comes. But look at First uh, John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is This is how God showed his love among us. And I was reading the ESV earlier, and I like the word they use, manifest. This is how God manifested his love, like materialized it from just a concept to an actual thing that you can grasp. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do I have any Star Wars nerds here? Okay, who, who shot first? Was it Han or the, uh, what was the other guy? Greedo? Okay, who shot first? Was it Greedo or Han? I know, I know only like two of you get that reference. This is going to make sense. Hold on. Okay, let's say Greedo shot first. Who loved first, me or God? Come on. God. God loved first. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loved first. He initiated, he pursued, he demonstrated. I was not loving God. That was not my default position. And as we discuss what it means to be a child of God, you have to understand that you were born a sinner, okay? You need to be born again as a saint, born of God, as the verse says, born of God. Your default position was not to love God. It was not to worship God and praise God. Though you were made in his image, though there is still some semblance of those qualities about you, let's face facts. No one had to teach you to lie. 
No one had to teach you to be selfish. How many know children can be so cruel? You saw the video of that little boy with dwarfism saying, I want to die, I want to die, I don't want to live. Why? Because of cruel, sinful little children bullying him. Who taught them to be so cruel? I was a cruel little boy, and I was bullied too, so I would, you know, pass it on. No one had to teach us this stuff. Uh, in fact, all of our efforts are to curb these sinful tendencies, to teach us, okay, I know it feels good, I know it feels right to do what is wrong, but that's not how the world works, and we have to go through all these efforts to try to cure our sinful tendencies, to try to curb our sinful desires, right? That's, what, that's basically what all of self-help is. That's what our criminal justice system is. That's what all this world is trying to do is their, their futile attempt to curb, to, to, to cure the sinful nature. It was not us that first loved him because we were sinners, because we were rebellious. It wasn't me just loving Jesus so much that he finally took notice of me. Like I was that, like that guy who was in the friend zone, but I tried really hard and I got out of the friend zone because God finally noticed me. Like in those old movies, like the old movies, this is the 90s, like the, the freak to chic, like the ugly girl who gets the makeover and then the guy notices her, right? Like that's not what it was. He loved us while we were sloppy. Well, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Before I move on, I just want to sing a simple chorus. Perhaps some of you know this, and maybe you could put this on the screen. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. And I want us to sing that. You may not have sung it before, but it's not hard at all to learn. It, uh, just wait for Calvin to get that, that up there. But you already know the words. I'm just going to sing it. As you get the, the sense of how it's sung, you can sing along. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Everyone should get that now. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. One more time from the heart. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Thank you, Lord. Come on, give him a shout of praise. Give him a hand clap. What a good God. What a loving God. 
awesome. What an awesome God we serve. So with that being said, having taken a moment to behold what great love he has for us, it says that the reason the world does not know us, it does not recognize Christians as the children of God. And why is that? Because they do not recognize God. And so we were at Logan Square yesterday with the gospel truck, and every time we've been out there, it's been nothing but mockery and memes. They have nothing meaningful to say to us. We had a woman urinate. We had a guy uh, threaten to kill our pastor last spring, and that was all you know, caught on tape. The world does not recognize us as God's children. They think we're quite the opposite. They think we're bad news. They think we're bad people. But why don't they recognize us as the children of God? Because they don't recognize God. Now going on, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen? Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That statement is so powerful. In fact, it's just a, a subclause of the, of the sentence here in verse 2. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does it mean, we shall be like him? I was really excited preparing this message because it just gave me opportunity just to teach. I'm going to teach you some very fundamental Christian doctrine that does not get taught very often. And this is fundamental, so it's kind of sad that it's, it doesn't get talked about. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, please. This whole chapter deals with the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the past tense, the historical event of his resurrection. And then it talks about our future resurrection. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now go to verse 30, uh, 42, scroll down a bit. So he says that your body in death is sown like a seed. So if you sow a sunflower seed, for example, in, it, it will go into the ground and in, in a sense die, but then it will raise up as what? A sunflower. Now it's the same substance, but it is different, okay? So it is like our bodies. Your body, when you die, if you're buried... And this is why burial is actually seen as um, a very religious and sacred thing, burial of the body, because it is sown into the ground, okay, like a seed is sown into the ground, but it's going to come up out of the ground and it's going to come up in a different form. In the resurrection, you will not have a different body, but your body will be different. Okay, does that make sense? You'll not have a different body, but your body will be different. The sunflower seed will sprout into the sunflower. Or you can even like it to uh, metamorphosis, the, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. It's the same creature, but it has now taken on a different form, right? Now, reading on verse 42, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. How many know your body is perishable? Okay, 
that you get broken bones and diseases and sickness and you, how many of your back hurts like every day, right? Your body is like perishable. Like there's just, every, everybody's got aches and pains here, I, I bet, you know. That's why we could just have a prophetic healing service right now. Oh, I feel someone in here has a bad back, like Captain Obvious, right? Anyway, so it's obvious, it is evident to us all our bodies are perishable, they're weak, and then they eventually die. Like, no matter how good you take care of it, the body perishes, right? It is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Now think about this, we have to cover the majority of our bodies, because there's something taboo about the naked body. There is something dishonorable about being disrobed before others, right? Like in the garden, Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. But then what happened when they started sinning? They introduced shame. And so there is that element as well. And let's just face it, some of our bodies are more dishonorable than others. They're not as presentable as others. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. We know the first Adam, but who's the last Adam? Amen. Easy Sunday school question there. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. You see that? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Jesus raised from the dead, was he zombie Jesus who needed a blood transfusion? You know, and, okay, and okay, he was raised in glory, he was raised in power, he was, and as all these things, he was raised imperishable. Everything that was true of the resurrected body of Jesus will be true of our own bodies. His body went into the earth, and then it came out of the earth, but it wasn't the same. It was immortal. It was imperishable. It was not subject to death and weakness the way our bodies are. And, and un, his body was different in that he did not have the same innate uh, temptation to sin, but that will not exist for us either. That, that, that flesh, you know, the flesh that has that desire to sin, that desire to lust, that desire uh, to be an addicted to things, th those things will be gone because the body will be transformed. But that's how it is. We will be like him, raised in glory, just as he has been raised in glory. Now, moving on, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
But we will all be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Please scroll. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a crash course in the resurrection. But here's, here's a thousand-foot view of it. When you die, your soul, your body rather, your body goes into the ground, your spirit ascends into heaven in the presence of God. But that is only an intermediate state. There are brothers and sisters who have passed on, and they are in God's presence right now, and it is awesome. But that is just the beginning. Our final state is to be resurrected, not to be uh, an, an immaterial spirit, you know, sitting on a cloud somewhere. Or, you know, you think of heaven like babies plucking harps and things like that. Our new, our destiny is new body, new heaven, new earth, forever with Jesus, new Jerusalem, all that. So it's going to actually be a physical existence that we have, but, but different. So not only will the world be different that we live in, same world but resurrected in a sense, but our bodies will be resurrected. And you could use uh, your imagination for that as well to just kind of picture how, how that's going to look. Um, but I'm looking forward to that. How about you guys? That's my blessed hope. Amen. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's keep reading. Um, verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. I'm going to have to move a little bit quicker through these points, but just think about that. If that is your hope, if that is your destiny, then why would, you, why would the things of this world be a temptation to you? As the, as the hymn goes, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of this world, the glitz, the glamour, the strobe lights of the club, the, 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 the naked uh, exposed bodies of women out there in the world that, that, that are tempting to men, uh, all the glory and all the, all the money, all the fame, everything this world has to offer should have zero appeal to us because we are um, looking ahead to something that is infinitely greater. But let's move on. Verses 4 through 6. And... What we want to see here is a definition of sin. My son is doing JBQ, Junior Bible Quiz. Uh, son, according to 1 John 3, 4, what is the definition of sin? Do you know it? Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. I wasn't going to put him on the spot there, but it's lawlessness. It is transgression of God's laws. God has commands. God wrote a book, things you should do, things you should not do. And this is going to be really important, okay, because this is the dividing line between the children of God and the children of the devil, okay? The children of God and the children of the devil. In verse 7, he says, don't let anyone lead you astray. 
because there will be plenty of people that will tell you you can live like the devil and still claim to be a child of God. Plenty of people. There will be plenty of justifications that you can have. We meet professing Christians all the time. We meet spiritual people all the time. We meet religious people all the time who basically say, God loves me and I'm going to heaven regardless of how I live my life. Do not let anyone lead you astray. Do not be deceived. If you sin, if you make it a habit to break God's laws, you show that you are not a child of God. As it says Jesus in verse 5, Jesus appeared to take away our sin. He died on the cross in your place for your sin to take away your sin. And you're going to want to write this down. He takes away the penalty of sin. The penalty the hell you deserve, he experienced. The wrath you deserve, he experienced in your place. He takes the penalty of sin. He takes the power of sin so that once upon a time you were being pimped by your sinful desires. You were pimped by your flesh. And the things you wanted to do, even though you knew you were, they were wrong, you just couldn't help yourself. You were powerless. Remember Romans 5, when we were powerless... He removes the power of sin. You can say no to sin, men. You can say no to sin, women. You can say no to sinful desires in whatever form they take. And then, ultimately, he will take away the presence of sin. I say he will as in future tense. Because you have to be honest with the fact that the temptation of sin is still in the world. Right? It's still there. But the presence of sin will be removed at the resurrection, when we're like him, when we see him as he is. And so with that being said, with all that God has done to take away our sins and free us from sin, it says no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. They've never seen him or known him. There are so many people who, rep who misrepresent Jesus. They misrepresent Jesus. They claim to know Jesus. They claim to have seen Jesus. But if they have known Jesus and they have seen Jesus, they should know that they are not living right. And so they misrepresent him. John himself says at the beginning of this letter, which we have known, which our hands have seen, he actually saw Jesus in the days of his flesh. He knew Jesus. And so he knew those fakers, these people who... He would, they wouldn't know Jesus from anybody else. They wouldn't know Jesus from the fake Jesus in Puerto Rico we learned about last week. They couldn't tell the difference. And they're going to tell you how to live your life. And they're going to tell you you should just accept yourself for who you are. And they're going to just give you a thousand and one reasons and excuses and justifications to live in sin. But it is a reflection that you have neither seen him or known him if you don't live like him. Verse 7, do not let anyone who leads you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now look again at verse 5. Verse 5, it says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Then verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In both verses, you underline uh, the word appeared. 
He appeared to take away our sins. He appeared to destroy the devil's work. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. What is the devil's work? To sin and to make you sin. Whatever he can do to keep you locked in a life of sin. He doesn't care if you go to church. He don't care who your pastor is. Okay? He doesn't care what you call yourself. He doesn't care if you feel good in your conscience. um, Because that's a dangerous place, by the way. You ever feel good in your conscience while you're in sin? Oh, I'm at peace, brother. I'm at peace. God God has given me peace about my sin. God has given me peace about my unlawful relationship. God has given me peace about my language. God has given me peace about my slander. God has given me peace about my bitterness. Wicked. But the devil doesn't care if you have peace. The devil doesn't care if you feel good about it or not. He just wants you to sin. He wants you to be in sin. He wants you to love sin. He wants you to justify your sin. He wants you to repeat your sin. Because your sin will keep you away from the Lord. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to take away your sin and destroy the devil's work. And so this is why I had a guy in Teen Challenge where I used to work, Christian Drug Rehab Program. I read this passage without comment. I didn't say anything else. I just read the passage. He got offended. This is a guy who was a professing Christian And in fact, he was a fan of a lot of the popular preachers that are out nowadays, like Stephen Furtick, Judah Smith, and all these guys. And he's a fan of these guys. He's a professing Christian. He just got offended at the Bible. I said, do you understand that you just disagree with the Bible? Because I didn't even say anything. I understand that I can sometimes kind of just speak my ideas, and they can sound right, but... I, I can be wrong, right? I can, I can be out of step with this at times. All I did was read the verse that says, He who does what is right is, is of God. He who does not do what is right is of the devil. And he got so offended. But that is the dividing line. The devil will keep you in sin. If you sin, it proves you are not a child of God because it proves that you are not born of God. Now, I... Don't have the time here, but if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, as a reference here, John 8, 31 to 47, as you can actually see that in the notes in parentheses, this is where Jesus, speaking to the Jewish leaders, he says, you claim to be children of Abraham, but you act like your father, the devil. This was gentle Jesus, meek and mild, calling people devil child. And if they were children of the devil, why? Because they opposed Jesus. Because they heard what he said, and they didn't like what he had to say. Isn't that fascinating? The world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. If we could start to get the band here, uh, up here, and we'll we'll be ready to uh, close out in a few moments. That's why they opposed, that's why they were considered devil's children. They didn't want to listen to Jesus. They didn't want to obey his word. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. John tells it like it is, like it is. This is how we know. How more black and white can you be? So whatever follows the colon there in that sentence is the answer. And it's not that hard. It's not. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. That's it. Now, I talked earlier about those words, born of God, that we see in verse 9. And I, I don't want to gloss over that at all. We know that the Apostle John was the writer of this as well as the Gospel of John because there's just so many concepts and themes that carry over. You read John, you read 1 John, and, and you know that it was the same author coming from that similar perspective. Let's look at John chapter 3. I want to talk about what it means to be born of God. I'm going to give you three differences between the child of God and the child of the devil. John gives them all here. Number one, if you do not do what is right, you are not God's child. Let's all stand. If you do not do what is right, you are not God's child. That's, that's what he said, right? And anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So those are two things. The third thing is being born of God. Now, what has to come first? Doing right, loving your brother and sister, or being born of God? You have to be born of God first. You have to have God change your heart. You have to be born of God to be a child of God. And as a child of God, He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new spirit. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee. This was somebody who, who knew the Bible very well but he's dropping some science on him. He says in verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. First John chapter 3, he talks about those who are born of God. John chapter 3, he talks about those who are born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes to dwell inside of your spirit, to give you new birth. As I had said before, you were born a sinner. You must be born again a winner. You were born the first time. Some people so arrogantly say, I was born right the first time. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. If you were born right the first time, you, you tell your therapist that. You were born right the first time. You have no regrets. You have nothing wrong with you. Yeah, right. We must be born again. Those, by the way, to tie this all up with a bow, those who are born twice only die once. Remember, our destiny is resurrection life. This body expires. 
I go into the presence of God. I later receive my resurrection body. I live with Jesus forever. I was born twice. I was born 1987. I was born a sinner. I was lost. I was born again in 2007 a saint. And I began eternal life. I don't wait till I go to heaven. I receive eternal life here and now. I begin a relationship with God here and now that spans from here into eternity. But those who are born once will die twice. Those who are born once, they're born sinners, but they don't want to change. They don't want to admit their need to God. And they stubbornly refuse the gracious invitation of life. They die twice. They die their mortal death. Their body expires. The scriptures tell us that they too will experience a resurrection. They too will have an immortal body so that it can be tormented forever. When they die, they go to hell, but hell is just county jail till they go upstate. The scriptures tell us that hell and the grave are thrown into the lake of fire along with all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's only two kinds of people in this world. Children of God and children of the devil. We know the difference. Those who are children of God, firstborn of God. Can you think to a time when you were born of God? When God filled you with His Spirit. And as we read earlier, His Spirit filled your heart with love. He made you a new person. You could look back to a time where you were changed. God did it. And once you were born of God, it says you could not go on sinning because God's seed is in you. You became convicted of sin. The things that you used to do with impunity, brazenly, boldly, loving it, you couldn't do anymore. You were so grief-stricken over your sin, even small things. How many could testify? A third thing, and, and it will probably be addressed more in next week's message, loving your brother or sister. This is about love for other Christians. So let's get our altar workers up here. Men who are here, if you want to pray, you can pray with one of the men that's up here. Women who need to pray, pray with one of the women that's up here. If you, first of all, have not been born of God, they will walk you through that. They're not going to pray a magic prayer with you, but if you pray from your heart, the Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you pray from your heart, Call on Jesus to forgive you, save you, make you a new person. He'll do it. Amen? He will do it. And they'll, they'll show you what that's like, and they'll prepare you. They'll, they'll talk to you about discipleship and what it means to live that out. If you struggle with doing what is right, if you lack conviction of sin, if you're doing things that go against Christ, you need to come up to this altar and you need to search your heart. If you don't love other Christians, 
This is a big one. If you don't love other Christians, you need to come up to this altar. Come on now. As the band worships the Lord, come up to this altar if you need prayer. If you're one of those people, you don't know if you're born of God. Because, come on. For raising me up with Christ, I could never take credit for this life. Cause in the coming ages, all that remains is.